Welcome to the Lubber's Hole. This is that Patrick O'Brien podcast where Ian and Mike together reread the Aubrey Matchery novels of Patrick O'Brien. Um, Mike, we're making rapid progress here through the letter of Mark. Where has that progress taken us so far and where might it take us this week? You betcha, Ian. So last week, Jack boarded the surprise in time to resolve the brewing Seth mutiny. And we learned probably more than we'll ever want to know about Britain's Commonwealth Protestant groups, the small splitter groups, um, um, Sethians being one of them. And, and Jack changed his plan for taking the Diane, decided to cut her out rather than to wait offshore. And he took the surprise and her crew to a deserted cove to practice the mission for weeks before sailing off to find the St. Martin's squadron. Now, this time, as, as we move into chapter six, Jack is searching for the St. Martin squadron in the night. Now, he's hoping that Babington will agree to his plan to cut out the Diane and that William will not volunteer to lead the mission himself. Jack uh-huh. needs this win personally, right? Hmm. So, you know, this week we have Greek drama tips, crazed horses on ships, and Merry Christmas greetings from the surprise crew's wet lips. Oh, Mike, some <laughs> rhymes going on there. Oh. <laughs> I've now reached the end of my ability to do anything that, that remotely like that. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I foresee a lover's whole rap set coming up pretty, oh, pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's get into it. It's a misty Thursday night, and the surprise out at sea finally spots the St. Martin Squadron, this squadron of British ships led by Babington aboard the Tartarus. Jack slightly snippily, I think, notices that the Tartarus's clock is two or three minutes ahead of the surprises. You know, rather than there's not a moment to lose, it turns out there were a few moments to gain for the Tartarus's. Stephen, meanwhile, is really glad to see the relief in Jack at finding a squadron. And he invites Jack to come and sit and eat supper, saying that he's never seen Jack this impatient, which is quite a high bar because Jack is a pretty impatient cove. Jack smiles at Stephen and I think realises that he's not been the smiliest of people up to this point and thinks of all the things that he's dealt with so far that day. He's dealt with lack of wind, contrary tides. And so even when the men appeared to be making progress, towing the surprise, actually they were being towed forwards amongst sea that was sliding back as the tide carried them back. He'd been unable to make a noon observation with all this weather. He'd had no sight of the coastline. Jack was really dependent on his dead reckoning that needed to be perfect. If the dead reckoning had turned out to be off because of all these currents and all their course changes, then they would have had to meet the squadron inshore in the morning. And that would have perhaps lost them the decisive element of surprise. He's also worried that with the Tartarus-led squadron being rather on the weak side, the Diane might already have decided to sail, knowing that they could sail with relative impunity. And wrestling with these things all day, Jack knew that Stephen would not understand them. We get a little internal monologue of Jack's here. He's thinking that no one without an intimate knowledge of the sea could understand the infinity of things that could go wrong in so simple a voyage as this, or the infinite importance of getting them all right. Not that in the present case, getting them right and joining the squadron offshore was in itself success, but it was a necessary condition for success. And the relief of having reached at least that stage was something that only another man with so much at stake could fully comprehend. 
boy. So Jack's in his own world here, and I think Stephen's seen that a little as well. Yeah, we can we can really feel the weight that Jack has yeah. on him over this whole thing. And Jack, boy, I tell you, we've seen such a difference in his ability to kind of look inside and and be self-aware. Uh, you know, Brian tells us Jack is really sorry that he let his impatience or what he calls his almost choking fury on occasion be seen. So he invites Stephen to have a drink with dinner to play some music before, you know, they head aboard the 18-gun Tartarus in about an hour. And interestingly, you know, O'Brien tells us that a simple pleasure appears on Stephen's, as O'Brien writes it, by no means simple face. <laughs> and then, of course, we see why, too. Not only is this Jack and Stephen coming back together, but there's music. Um, oh. And O'Brien writes, yeah, the piece... Stephen's own variations on a theme by Haydn was correct and fluent, but it was not particularly interesting until the last sheet where Stephen and Haydn came together in a curious, hesitant phrase whose two beats of silence were singularly moving. The violin played it first, and while the cello was answering, they heard the hail from no great way off. The ship ahoy! What ship is that? And the full-voiced reply just overhead, surprise! The cello made its pause, completed the phrase, and the two combined to work it towards the full close. The door opened, and Pulling stood there with the news. Jack nodded, and they played on to the deeply satisfying end. Tartarus is just to windward, sir, said Pullings when they put their bows down. <laughs> it's a great moment, and isn't it great that they're playing together? When they get the news that it's all on. <laughs> yeah, that, that's all going to work here. Exactly. And, you know, I, I thought about it. Amy. You're right. It's like everything coming together. The phrase is coming together. Yeah. You, know, the, the, you know, the mission, we're getting that first stage of success. Yeah. And we get, a, we get a bit of personification for ships and we get a bit of personification for musical instruments as well, there, which is a nice, nice. bit of O'Brien literary stuff. And Jack then calls for Stephen's skiff, grabs his chart. He has Bondon to get his best blue coat and says to Stephen, well, why are you not coming with? And Stephen says, well, I don't want my connection to the intelligence side of this to be advertised. So he says he's going to review the details with Jack when Jack returns and clarifies that he does want to come along during the attack. And Mike, I, I kind of screeched to a halt here for a minute and went, wait, 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 hold on. Stephen wants to be in the attack. There's got to be a a particular thing going on here because Stephen hardly ever takes part in the regular naval kind of combat. So I have to ask myself, why now? And first of all, you could think, well, why not? It's a cutting out expedition, which means if the surgeon stays aboard ship, he's going to have nothing to do until the casualties and the survivors all come back in the boats. So he's not going to be others otherwise occupied. He gets no benefit for standing by his station. Secondly, this is not like the taking of the Cacafuego. They don't need every last man, Jack. They've got all these Tartaruses and dolphins and vultures and the others. So they don't really need Stephen's hand and his sword to critically balance out the numbers. And Mike, I think this is probably the most likely. We, we know a little of Stephen's interest in the intelligence side of this. We believe, I think, that there's going to be an intelligence agent aboard the Diane, which is probably the most likely explanation. But my brain kind of span on here and i'm thinking well maybe this is a reach back to Stephen and jack 
supporting each other, especially Stephen supporting Jack in the reverse of the medal. And maybe having been at Jack's side for the pillory, but not been at Jack's side for the trial, Stephen wants to be there for his friend. Nice. And I span back even further and got even darker and thought, well, also in the last book, Stephen was pretty much regarding his life as cheap. You know, he'd set out to meet Duhamel almost without his pistols and said to himself, bah, you know, what's a life worth? So maybe there's a little bit of Stephen thinking, well, I'll just throw myself into this combat. And I'll, either this is trial by ordeal to help me figure out whether fate is going to be kind to me over the relationship with Diana, or maybe this is just a little bit of a death wish on Stephen's part. And that, that was a bit of a dark place, I thought. It is. It is. And, you know, there's so many things going on here, particularly for Stephen. I mean, this is, you know, right, a lot of weight on Jack, but it's all weight kind of in a good direction. With Stephen, we don't know, right? No, no, no. Yeah. Well, for Jack, things do continue to go well. Babington is so pleased to see him. He knew that Jack was coming, but hadn't expected him this early. And, And Jack says he almost didn't see him this early in, in a bit of an Aubreyism. He says, a needle in a haystack would not bear the comparison on such a thick night, but a stitch in time saves nine, as you know very well, and we set out betimes. And I thought, well, I'm not sure if I was Babington if I would completely get this, but it's not really as mangled as most of the Aubreyisms. Betimes, by the way, meaning, you know, we set out earlier than expected. So, okay, yeah, earlier than expected. Stitch in time saves nine. It's dark weather. Needle and I say, okay, Jack, I'd, I'd say, you know, nine out of ten on. Yeah, yeah. given given his mental state, I think that's a pretty solid piece of, uh, piece of Aubreyism there. Exactly. So Babington had heard that Jack was coming, and he has orders to cooperate with him in any action against the Diane. Uh, he confirms that she's still moored in St. Martin. So there's a big relief for Jack. She hasn't sailed out early. And Babington, like Jack, has heard that she plans to sail on the 13th. And that's been confirmed by local fishing boats that serve both the French and the St. Martin squadron there. They actually, uh, I think they took a shine to Fanny when she was aboard (laughs) with William. You know, she was conversing with them in French, and I think they're worried about her. So they told the squadron, told uh, William in particular, that the Diane is new and fast, looks like a 40-gun ship, has a well-trained crew, and her tops are full of riflemen. and. That, in fact, they think her broadside could sink any one of the squadron members in one go. So they're saying, you know, on the 13th, I think you should just be scarce a little bit here. And uh, Jack says, well, you know, speaking of Fanny, you know, uh, would love to see her. And he says, no, no, no. I sent her back with the cutter that brought us the news. He said, you know, I remember the doctor telling me back on the Sophie, there's nothing worse for the female frame than gunfire. Mm. And, you know, lest we kind of stay with that as 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 a male-female <laughs> dichotomy, I, I would add to it's nothing worse for a man's frame than a female. We pissed off enough to have her start firing guns. That's oh, very true. Very true. Uh, if only they'd realized these things back in the uh, 19th century. Right. Ah. Good, good. So... Among the other things that the cutter brought out, it turns out that it brought news that Babington now wants to share with Jack. He says he's sorry that Stephen couldn't come over. He's going to have to share his news directly with Jack and have Jack pass it along to Stephen. The news is that Captain Babington is to be made post with seniority from the first of this next month. And great, 
great news. Jack's delighted. The text says he sprang to his feet. A lifetime at sea shielded his head even now from the low beams above it. Grasp Babington's hand. Give you joy with all my heart, William, he cried. I have heard nothing that has given me so much pleasure this many and many a day. May we not drink a glass to your coming flag. And really nice piece of unfeigned, sincere joy for Jack to share with his friend Babington. We can absolutely, by the way, believe that Jack, who would have been delighted about this news at any time, can be even more delighted because it means that he no longer has to worry about trading off Jack's reinstatement against Babington's promotion to post rank. Babington's got the post rank. This means Babington's got a little bit less skin in this forthcoming game. So, huh. Yeah, I think another piece of great news for Jack that Diane's <laughs> there. William, you know, he can, I, I think Jack could be a little more forward now about, you know, the plan. And, yeah, whereas before he was saying, you know, if William offers to lead it, I just got to back off and let him. So now I think, you know, He's can breathe a little easier. So they drink this toast. Babington asks about Jack's plan. And interestingly, before he starts, Jack points out that Babington is the senior king's officer in this squadron. And that if Babington doesn't like anything in Jack's plan, he's to say so plainly so they can settle it before the other officers come aboard for the full war council. So whenever we get to that crossing the line, uh, special about management in the Aubrey ad. I think this is one of those moments we want to come back to. What a brilliant yeah. idea. I love how they're setting this up here. Now, Jack lays out the chart. He tells Babington, you know, detail by detail, the plan for cutting out the Diane on the 12th, while her officers and most of her men are on shore celebrating before their long deployment. Um, he tells them how Pullings will be firing on the Isthmus while Jack leads this boarding party of boats. And Babington's squadron is to stay close offshore in case they're needed in an emergency. But each ship is to provide a boat full of men to help tow the Diane out of the harbor. Now, Babington asks if those men will help, you know, will help in the boarding as well. And Jack says, not in the first assault, since the surprises are already trained. They've been you know, working this out. They know every move in exact detail, and, and having new people in this would just mess them up. But he says if the Diane proves too awkward, they'll call on them to help. <laughs> it's a great plan, and we like these um, situations that we've had them before in other books as well, of Jack reading other captains in on his plans, a bit like a gang of bank robbers. Right. Um, Babington really likes it. He says it's a capital plan, He's got no improvements to suggest. Jack adds that the surprise is going to stand out tomorrow. We'll pick up the four boats from the other ships under darkness as the squadron comes back out. They'll be well lit. The surprise will be coming in darkened. And Jack asks that the lobster boats should not know that the surprise is here. That's his goal, is to maintain all of the stealth and the surprise about the existence and the approach of the surprise herself. And as they wait for the other captains, Babington and Jack talk about earlier successful actions that they had together. Now, Babington, once these other captains arrive, Babington introduces them and tells them that Jack will review the plan and he sort of directs them that Babington and Jack are in complete agreement and they're going to listen without questions. They can add observations and advice about currents and soundings and enemy dispositions at the end. 
the camels captain a man called lee an elderly one-armed lieutenant with no hopes of promotion does exactly that he tells jack about the current against the rampart at the height of the flood and then that slack water that could impact them if they want to pass unseen jack really appreciates the advice we turn to the captain of the dolphin griffiths by name newly appointed young commander says what you'd expect a young commander to do he says with babington's permission i volunteer to lead the squadron's boats and babington's ahead of that he says mr Aubrey and i agree the captains are going to remain with their commands and stand by in case all doesn't go well that one's taken care of and we get the third i think my archetype of captains in a little squadron we have the captain of the vulture mr stripe who earlier had been described as being so pale as to be non-existent and and therefore that it was strange that he should even be wearing the king's uniform um he speaks up and they realize that he's drunk he asks how do we stand for prize money and the others all blush with shame jack looks at him coldly and says that is surely counting your bed ah no he he drops his planned aubreyism and goes on to say that the question's premature that he invites misfortune and says that they'll follow the custom of the sea those who tow share equally with those that take and lee says that's fair enough so we get a nice nice little reminder that jack is wise to the ways of the service and keeping everybody happy but we also get this nice view of babington in this very commanding very self-assured mold that's a long way away from midshipman babington that we met right at the beginning of the canon and mr stripe gets one in the eye as well but you know i we all feel happy about that i think right right and you know uh, we were chatting earlier ian and you yeah. you mentioned that you know at, at this point the surprises cook's mate could buy and sell mr stripe many times over after their yeah. last haul of prize <laughs> money so yeah yeah that's uh have another drink mr stripe your services will not be needed right <laughs> well jack asked each ship to provide its largest boat fully manned with a set of spare rowers well-armed for boarding, carrying no hook ropes, and commanded by a bosun or a senior master's mate. So Jack's really thought this out well, and they should be made absolutely silent, you know, to muffle the rowing, uh, make sure there's no speaking, wants them all to have white armbands at the ready. So once, you know, they're in action, they, you know, know who the good guys and the bad guys are. Which, by the way, is a little um, Russell Crowe alert. Oh. That's something that we saw happen in the movie. And we're getting very, very late in the canon for Russell Crowe alerts, but that's a little little piece of action from the movie. Well spotted, Ian. Yes. And, and I love, as we get this part of the season for us as we're recording this here, that... The password is Merry Christmas, and the answer is Happy New Year. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays out there to all our listeners here. We're glad to be getting into the Christmas spirit. Um, You know, we kind of can think back on a few Christmas scenes in past books, and uh, I'd say Jack and his crew are doing a little bit better this time around. I think they are. I think they are. Right. Well, after all the captains are gone, Jack and Babington go over the rest of the details. They're confirming that there's, at Babington's last sight, a worthless brig, a couple of gunboats with 32-pounders, the Diane and two merchantmen kind of hooked right there along the quay as they'll come up. So they draw up three copies. Here's the layout of the ships here. Here's the the simplest version, uh, most direct, uh, unambiguous description of the mission. 
and to be handed out to the captains. Jack saying, you know, it would really help out if you would have the captains learn this by heart, then have their men on their ships learn it by heart here um, so that they're all ready to go. And then he asked Babington to promise essentially that, you know, if it all goes wrong, that Babington will not follow him in uh, or allow any of the other ships to follow him in. Um, He's saying that the French batteries at that point would just cut them to pieces. So, you know, if it all goes wrong, you have to kind of leave us there. He says Paul Poolings has already agreed not to follow him in as well. Uh, Babington agrees somewhat unwillingly, but wishes to God he was going in with Jack. And I, you know, I'm just... I'm all warm and fuzzy there because it's clear that, you know, Babington so admires and respects, you know, I, I say loves, you know, his friend and his his commander here. So this is not the zeal of somebody, you know, wanting part of the glory here. It's a really great point. And it's a nice thing for us all to remember about Babington as well. Uh, as they go back to the ship, Jack notices the clear sky. The weather looks great. And just by way of not tempting fate, he says by way of averting ill fortune, he says that he wishes that it won't turn dirty by morning. And Bonden sees right through that. He says, never you worry, sir. It's not going to turn dirty. I've never seen a prettier night. And back in the cabin, Jack confirms this with the barometer. So the weather gods at least are with us. He sits down to write his next chapter of his serial letter to Sophie, telling her, William Babington's news and saying that it's been a busy day and hopes that it will be far busier tomorrow. He gets into bed and his mind is easy. The text says, it appeared to him that he had done everything that he ought to have done and that if the weather was kind, he had a fair chance of success tomorrow. The enterprise was perfectly justifiable, even if very much less depended on it. He would have undertaken it in any circumstances. He knew that his colleagues were fallible, that the simplest order could be misunderstood or disobeyed, and that grotesque ill luck could always intervene. But now the dice were thrown, and he must abide by the result. And Mike, I really like this note of calm and stoicism here. Jack knows that he's done all the planning that he can, and he's still able to sleep, and he knows that he's just got to trust in whatever's coming next, knowing that he's done all that he can. I've read some first-hand accounts in, you know, in, in naval history and military history books of commanders on the night before an operation. And I've heard this same thing that, you know, we've made our plans. We know the weather might not work. We know chance might be against us, but our plans are planned and we're in great shape and we've trained for this so we can go and sleep easy. And it's, it's a remarkable bit of stoicism given what they're about to get themselves into. That's for sure. The next day, the decks are full of everyone preparing. They're exchanging the carronades for the long guns. Uh, you know, they decided the carronades take far fewer men to fire. They can be fired more rapidly. That's making a lot more noise to distract the enemy. Stephen and Martin, you know, they're not needed necessarily. So they take a chess set, telescopes, and books up to the mizzen top. <laughs> it's yeah. here. Here's an, here's an afternoon of Stephen and Martin up in the tops. And Martin, in the midst of this, asked Stephen how he would render, that is, translate, peripatia, uh, the Greek, into English. And Stephen suggests peripety, saying that, you know, the French have a similar word, though its usage is perhaps a bit more ordinary than than the Greek would be. Now, Martin worries that using that word is not going to help Moet. It turns out that Moet had confided to Martin that he wants to write a book called A Sea Officer's Tragedy based on Aubrey's career. And Martin had said to him he hopes that it ends happily. And Moet said, well, it can't end happily because tragedies 
have to end in disaster. So Martin attempted to quote Aristotle's Poetica, uh, saying that tragedies that dealt with, and, and here's Martin's translation, if you will, the doings of great-minded men or women, but they don't have to end unhappily. And again, he, he uses, again, Martin's own translation from memory to mow it. The nature of the tragedy's action has always required that the scope should be as full as can be without obscuring the plot and that the number of events making a possible or necessary sequence that will change a man's state from unhappiness to happiness or from happiness to unhappiness should be the smallest possible. So Martin is arguing with Moet saying, well, it's not only possible, but it's really better since Aristotle put the unhappiness to happiness first. Well, you know, Moet's kind of taken with this, and he says, wow, you know, I'd, I'd really like to read this. Would you translate this Poetica for me? And Martin said, of course I will. Happy to do that. But Martin's having some real difficulty saying, you know, okay, this is what I remembered of it, but how do I actually translate all of this Greek? And, uh, you know, Stephen's also saying that he uh, kind of plowed through that because he wasn't very fond of Aristotle at the time. He, he had some remarks about Aristotle paying weak attention to birds. <laughs> he didn't have enough. <laughs> and, and that, you know, he, he had raised Alexander the Great, who was kind of the Napoleon of his age. So, you know, Stephen's saying, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't help you a lot. But as they come back down, they, you know, they hear the, uh, the drumbeat for dinner here and they're coming down and they're lowering themselves through the lover's hole. Welcome Yay. Stephen and Martin here. Yeah. Glad to have you here. Stephen says, tonight is perhaps Jack's true peripety. Dear Lord, how I pray his tragedy may end happy. And, you know, at that point, uh, O'Brien writes that kindly hands seized his ankles, guiding them to a firm foothold. So as we grab Stephen's feet here on the lover's hole, you know, we're with him in spirit. And, you know, maybe we should dig into Aristotle just a little bit more. Yeah, why not? It's it's really fascinating. And, and again, in, in this reread, Mike, I realized I'd, I'd kind of blown straight past this but not really thought about what it means and how much O'Brien is showing us about his own intentions and the, the rules that he's trying to follow. There is this very common misunderstanding amongst at least British English speakers that tragedy and comedy mean sad and happy. But Aristotle, as long ago as 335 BC, was trying to write a manual for writers of what he calls tragedy and epic drama. So the, the poetics were written by... Aristotle, a philosopher, as kind of a manual for writers of drama. And Aristotle had never tried to write drama, as far as I know. He lived towards the end of the great Athenian era of dramatic playwrights. So Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Aristophanes, all these guys had died before Aristotle was born. So he's now turning his attention to writing this nice critical piece about drama, having at about the same time. He had weak ideas about birds, to be sure, but he had some pretty solid stuff on physics, metaphysics, ethics, politics, and rhetoric. So he's, we, we, can, we can grant him his polymath status. And he was trying to distill what he thought of as best practice from the practice and the works of these great Athenian playwrights. I don't think he's passing on his own skill and experience as a dramatic writer, you might argue this is a little touch of hubris on the part of Aristotle, in which case he's using his own idea. Anyhow, the, this treatise was apparently written in two parts, the first part dealing with tragedy and the second part 
dealing with comedy, and it seems that only the first part has survived. And it's still widely regarded as expressing the basic rules and value and structure of dramatic storytelling. If you've heard about the idea of the hero's journey, um, inciting events, reversals, Greek words that come into regular English uses like hubris, catharsis, nemesis, Aristotle wrote about them first. This is regarded as the first ever handbook on how to write a dramatic story. For for Patrick O'Brien, he's showing us a little bit of what he thinks he's been doing in providing reversals, um, these peripetae, for Jack Aubrey, among other people. And before, he's often made little inside jokes about the writing process. He's made little jokes about the preoccupations of writers. And he's made allusions to other bits of classical literature, like the Odyssey and the Aeneid. But this is the first time that he suggested that he himself is aware of and maybe also follows the rules set down by Aristotle. By the way, this is 400 years before Homer and Virgil were writing their poems. And maybe this mention of Peripatia is a joke, or at least a reference to the title of the previous book. Because if Peripatia translates as reverse, then the reverse of the medal was a kind of peripety. And Stephen here seems to be speculating that if the trial and the pillory in the previous book was one kind of reverse for Jack, then maybe this action could be the true reverse for Jack, especially if we allow the idea that peripatia can also mean unhappiness transitioning to happiness. And if I can drone on about this for a second more, O'Brien's not the only great author who's very visibly and clearly said, I'm following the rules of Aristotle. Another one of our favourite authors, the dramatist and screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, anywhere on the internet, if you go looking for it, will speak passionately about the poetics. He talks about them as being the basis for his own rules of writing character-led stories. Rather than ethos and peripatia, he talks about intention and obstacle. And here's a little bit of audio of Aaron Sorkin talking about how he uses them. So before I'm able to let the characters talk, uh, as he said, uh, I'll just go back to this because of how critically important it is, how, how fundamental it is. I'm not making this up. Aristotle made this up, uh, okay? And he's right. Uh, and if you buy, it's not even a book. It's about a, it's like a pamphlet. It's about 64 pages long um, uh, uh, called The Poetics, Aristotle's Poetics. He lays out the rules of drama. So I worship at the altar of intention and obstacle. Um, I, and I, if I can, so if I, if I know what that is uh, in the first scene, um, and, and I've done enough pacing around and, and, and can uh, uh, start to, you know, it starts to feel right, I can hear it, uh, it, it makes sense, there's a clear intention and obstacle. Uh, <clears throat> I try to get kind of as, as loaded up on that as I can, and then I write, and I write as quickly uh, as I can. So, Mike, we, we've got another connection here between Patrick O'Brien and the West Wing, which we love. And interestingly, I reach even further into this. Surely a coincidence. Aaron Sorkin talks about his way of writing and how he ends up being and speaking while he's in the middle of a bout of writing and we get this episode that reminds me a lot of Blue Breaches from just a few chapters ago in this book. I, I am emotional uh, uh, when I write. I'm actually very physical uh, uh, when I write, too. I'm, 
especially when it's going well, uh, I start acting out uh, uh, the parts. I, I, I stop typing, um, I, and it, it, it uh, I, and I start walking around. I can find myself, you know, two streets away from my office uh, uh, um, uh, or my house uh, uh, because things are uh, are going uh, uh, really well, and I kind of rush back uh, and type it. It's a it's a little enervating if I've uh, uh, written well. Um, if I'm writing badly, it's the worst feeling uh, uh, in the world. After so I'm a parent too, so after something bad happening to my daughter, this is the worst uh, uh, feeling in the world. Worst feeling in the world. So, Mike, I, I love this stuff with uh, with the, the connection to, to Blue Breaches. I listen to this kind of thing and I think, oh, I would love to do this. I'd love to write something. Wouldn't it be great to be using your imagination in this way? But then, you know, I look at how much distraction and procrastination goes into producing even two paragraphs worth of notes for this. And I look at someone like Sorkin, a professional, successful, well-adjusted human being that he is now, and look back to some of what we know about his history with, you know, relationships and drugs and stuff. And I think, well... Maybe, maybe Aristotle had the right idea. Maybe chatting about it and writing about it is much easier than actually doing it. Yeah, I, I think as as I you know watch our friend Rachel McMillan as she's up you know a, you know the Mozart code is coming now, but watching what she went through to get that book written, yeah, I agree with you. Writing about it is certainly easier than doing it. Indeed, a glass of wine with Aristotle and all the writers out there. Amen. So, Mike, let's go grab ourselves a glass of wine, refresh our knowledge of Aristotle's poetics, and perhaps come back after the break. What do you say? I like that of all things, except reading some more of Brian next week, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> Come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovershole. Welcome back. We hope that you're refreshed. We hope that you have uh, grabbed a glass of wine, depending on what time of day you're listening to this, and uh, that you're, you're back with us, poetics mastered, and ready to join Stephen and Jack again. Now, Stephen comes down from the tops, and he sees Jack in the cabin completely you know, sort of dressed to the nines. Uh, Stephen has forgotten that they've been invited to dine in the gun room. So, Jack, and, and boy, I, I really need one of these people, or at least I did back in my workaday world. Jack has Padin get Stephen ready in five minutes, five minutes from completely ruffled to ready to go to address dinner here. I would have loved that. So this is the first time that, you know, the surprise has had the captain dining in the gun room since she became a private man of war. You know, at first they were too poor. Then they were way too busy practicing this cutting out expedition. And, you know, there's a wonderful meal coming. You know, the gun room cook is trying to outdo Jack's cook, Audie. And he has supplies that O'Brien tells us were corruptly obtained from the Tartarus. But luckily that was not a pillaging. So they, they all get to stay aboard. 
And as they walk in, I think Jack notices, probably all of them notice that the gun room seems absolutely empty compared to the old dinners that we would read about on the surprise. You know, the old dinners had Marine officers. They had a master, a purser, a chaplain, midshipmen, guests, guests from other ships. But now we've got, you know, Jack has one whole side to himself. He's to pulling's right. Stephen and Davidge are across the table, and, and Martin's at the foot of the table opposite Tom. And that's it. I guess West is up, you know, sailing the ship. And, you know, pretty, pretty small compared to our other dinners. But we always love dinners aboard. However, this one starts kind of quiet and slow. Folks are still a little bit intimidated by Jack and uh especially West and Davidge. You know, West not here now, Davidge definitely. You know, they they both had been damaged by losing their commissions, just like Jack, which meant the loss of their livelihood and their future and a lot of their identity. You know, in that small dining room with that group there, some of them are strongly aware that they're about to head off on, you know, a life-threatening mission. Others realize that they're not going on that mission. And they're thinking that gaiety is really not appropriate in the midst of this dinner. Even Jack, who's kind of listening to Davidge go on and on with seemingly endless story that kind of keeps careening off in different directions, sees that the lobster on his fork is trembling as he's waiting to hear. So this is, is having an effect. And Davidge you know, starts about talking about eating dinner at an inn after listening to it a chorus at a nearby cathedral. And he happens to, you know, he's the only person there for dinner that evening. He comments on the beauty of one of the choir boys and, and ends up kind of being propositioned to by the innkeeper who, who kind of, you know, <laughs> takes this comment to mean something else. Um, and, and Davidge, you know, realizes what's happened here and manages to decline the offer without giving offense, you know, we're, we're told, which, you know, delights the innkeeper. This could have been, you know, kind of a really tough situation. And, and you know, they're both happy. And the innkeeper so delighted, he says, you know, your meal's complimentary. But as Davidge is telling this story with always, as O'Brien says, it's innumerable parentheses, he realizes, and O'Brien writes, that sodomy as a thing amusing in itself and the justification for any anecdote, however long, would not do for his grave, attentive captain. <laughs> you know, yeah, a second bit of self-awareness on the part of Davidge here. So he tries again to take the story in yet another direction and is luckily saved by the next course coming in. It's South Pig's Face, one of Jack's favorite, and a saddle of mutton. So, you know, Martin being at the end of the table is presented with this saddle of mutton to carve up. But Martin, being a bachelor up until now, has never carved a saddle of mutton and really doesn't know what to do. And as, as he's kind of trying to get after it, he accidentally thrusts the mutton into Davidge's lap. And, and Davidge thinks that his pants are a very cheap price to pay for saving him for having to finish his story. <laughs> So I'm, I'm trying, you know, I hate that the second half of Aristotle's poetics has been lost in because <laughs> I'm sure there was a Greek word that meant the comic reversal caused by a dinner guest having, you know, part of the dinner thrown into their pants. You know, <laughs> it seems to be one of O'Brien's stock and trade items, although we do understand that no nankeen trousers were injured in the telling of this tale. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? Now, Two really interesting things here, besides the, the the raw comedy and you know 
wouldn't it be great to know what was in the second volume? We get this nice bit of manners and civility, even though there's some broad um, humor here about sodomy. We do see somebody consciously emitting the cheap laugh. He is actually quite gracious in the conversation that he reports having had with the innkeeper. He's not being politically correct. He's not being woke. He's just trying to be civil. And I think that civility is a nice thing for us to think about. Nice. And also, you mentioned the Nankeen trousers, Mike. That's a reach back all the way to Master and Commander. And one of our listeners, I'm really sorry, I can't remember who it is, but on one of the Facebook appreciation groups, somebody has pointed out that this book letter of Mark in particular seems to have lots of passages that, as they say, rhyme with earlier passages in the book. And I think it's a really nice choice of words, this idea of rhyming. It's not repeated material, but it rings a really strong bell. And this is a, a little rhyme with that episode in Master and Commander with the Nankeen trousers. I think we've had rhymes already with Post Captain, with HMS Surprise, with Mauritius Command and Desolation Island. And it's really fascinating. I sort of doubt that it's just forgetfulness or laziness on the part of O'Brien. I mean, you could forgive him being forgetful of beats that have appeared in stories many, many volumes previously, given how prolific he's been. Maybe these are deliberate epithets, deliberate reminders of Jack Aubrey's character arc because this book is so focused on Jack and the, the restoration of Jack Aubrey's fortunes. And these little rhymes just, I think, serve to remind us that this novel sits as one part of this whole great long arc and that we're particularly interested in Jack Aubrey. What, what do you think, Mike? Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, O'Brien continuously amazes me. I mean, J.K. Rowling had you know, virtually a staff of people at her editors kind of doing continuity for, you know, all the Harry Potter books. You, know, you have to remember everything and how it's actually. And she, you know, you know, we hear that, you know, she wrote all these backstories and she kept all this stuff up there. How O'Brien keeps all this in his head, I don't know. But as you point out, you know, these things really are, they're not just kind of a repeated scene. They're different enough, but they are that kind of that, you know, bum, 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 a reminder yeah. again of Jack's <laughs> character and, you know, the life between Jack and Stephen and the folks at sea here. And and it's, you know, the love of this crew on the ship here. It's a really, really great point. Well, despite the slippage of the joint of meat into Davidge's lap, we do get a couple of things that are going well in this meal. One of them is the choice of wine. They have an excellent claret. Mike, this this, this uh, claret house, Fombrouge, we learn if they're still in business. Ownership has changed hands. The mix of vines and the type of vines in the in the uh, in the Fombroge vineyard is different these days. But the first vines were cultivated on the Fombroge estate as early as 1599. It became the largest estate in Saint Emilion, which is a famous famous Bordeaux uh, region. The estate itself dates to 1679. So this is an authentic piece of wine knowledge. Good job there by Patrick O'Brien. We know that he likes a nice bottle of classic uh, Bordeaux and a nice bottle of classic Burgundy. So this is clearly home territory. And we get another connection to the world of Patrick O'Brien and the cultural benchmarks that might have been around him. Jack is so taken with this wine that he reaches back into his own brief education ashore and says this little Latin motto, nunc est bibendum. And we learn as the text goes on, he had a rather triumphant look at Stephen and Martin and said, upon my honour, you could not ask for a pleasanter vino to bib. And Mike, nunc est bibendum, as those of us might know who remember fondly their Michelin Man adverts of for, for Michelin tyres from days gone by, 
That's the motto of Michelin tires. There's an original poster ad that we'll try and put out on our socials that says, uh, Le Neu Michelin Bois l'obstacle. The Michelin tire drinks obstacles. And this picture of this tire man holding up a glass of road and drinking up the obstacles. And Mr. Bibendum is still the branding character for Michelin tires. And, and he's still around. And I'm sure that those Michelin adverts with Mr. Bibendum would have been a, a feature in French life. Um, in the south of France in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when uh, when O'Brien was writing. Nunc Espy Bendum itself, we've moved hereby from um, Athenian place to Roman odes. It's a line from a poem of Horace's written in 23 BC, sometimes known as the Cleopatra Ode. The full quote, Nunc Espy Bendum, Nunc Pede Libero Pulsanda Telus, now is the time to drink, now we should dance freely. And Mike, this is all about Cleopatra, right? This is written to celebrate Cleopatra's defeat and death. We know that she's no longer a threat to Rome, so it's okay for us to eat and drink and celebrate. There are some debates about the precise nature of the translation, which I think count as a rabbit hole too many for us. This certainly would be lost on Jack, but this is indeed the meaning. Now is the time to celebrate because everything's going to be okay. It's a counterweight, I think, against some of the foreshadowing that we've had about the mission that's to come. And we all like, I think, this association with the Michelin tyres. So, Mike, now that we've learned a little bit about what this Nunc Espibendum thing means, what, what else is in the conversation around this dinner table? Well, they, they kind of break up now into a couple of small groups. Jack and Tom are talking about past shipmates and voyages. Stephen and David start talking about surviving all the duels as an undergraduate at Trinity College in Dublin. Stephen had gone there. Davidge had a cousin that went there. And Stephen, by way of this conversation, learns that Davidge is, is a bit of a hand with a sword. So he says, you know, it would oblige me extremely if you would exchange a few passes with me after dinner. I am somewhat out of practice, and it would grieve me to be cut down like a simpleton tonight. So I just love Stephen's phrasing here. And, and, you know, they're not the only ones thinking this way. When they get up on deck, men are practicing pistols. They're working with their boarding arms, you know, the cutlasses. And, and so Davidge gives Stephen one of his old fencing master's patented devices for covering the point of the sword so that they can use their actual swords in practice. He says, you know, it's much better than the typical button. And Stephen appears to be in form, O'Brien writes, tapping twice with his foot like a torero, a Spanish bullfighter. Stephen flew straight at Davidge with inconceivable ferocity. And they're clashing and spinning. It's sort of hard to follow, but Stephen cries, hold hard, when apparently Davidge has undone his britches ban. <laughs> so Stephen's <laughs> about to lose his pants. Um, Martin helps him to kind of cinch them back up. They start again. And again, um, O'Brien mentions Stephen's reptilian stillness before they start. And we've heard this so many times before. Yeah, that's another rhyme. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah another rhyme right there. And so they've got this furious bout, which results in Davidge's sword being thrown into the hammock netting. And, and da- I think Davidge is a bit kind of taken aback. He didn't expect this from Stephen. He's kind of joking. Well, you know, I'm another one of your corpses now, doctor. And he <laughs> asked to see Stephen's weapon. And Stephen shows him that he has these spring quillions by the handle of his blade. He uses it to catch an opponent's blade. And Davidge says to him, it's a murderous weapon. 
And Stephen mm-hmm. replies, after all, swords are for killing and thanks him for the practice. Yeah. And Stephen's, got, again, got this very cold, clear-eyed view of combat. It's not an honor thing. When he needs to, to go into combat with, with definitely intent, he can do it. Well, at eight bells, they wear the ship, and they're now headed to meet the squadron standing out to sea, this point where they'll intersect. The squadron's coming away from land. They're all lit up. Jack and the surprise are going in all darkened, and the atmosphere is very grave. Um, O'Brien tells us that Jack and Stephen write kind of their final arrangements letters that, you know, the thing that they do before every battle, they give them to pullings. But he says, yet today, it seems somewhat more than a conscientious precaution, more than a formal bow towards fate. Now, Stephen is really glad that everything doesn't have to be struck down in the hold because, you know, surprise is not going into battle. They're going to, you know, go into battle on the boats. So he sets a score on Diana's music stand, you know, that writing desk that she had given him. And O'Brien writes, you know, Stephen swept some deep, harsh chords that made the stern windows rattle and then began feeling his way through a piece new to him, a Duport Sonata. He was still in the Andante, his nose almost touching the score when Jack came in and said, why, Stephen, you're sitting in the dark. You'll ruin your eyes if you go on like that. Kill it. Kill it there. Bear a hand and strike a light. <laughs> Great stuff. I, I, I love the drama of Stephen getting so absorbed in his music that it's getting darker and darker and darker outside. I also love, Mike, this reference to Dupont. Uh, th- there's a bit of a trend here. We've gone from Locatelli at the beginning of Master and Commander. Six and a half out of ten for that one. Locatelli didn't write many string quartets, certainly didn't write one in F. O'Brien has got his musical reference game on. I wonder if he's even been hanging out with cellists because this Dupont reference is pretty good. There are not only one but two cellist composers of this era with the same name. In fact, they were brothers. The younger brother, Jean-Louis Dupont, is known to cellists, known to me and plenty of others, as the composer-creator of the Dupont Studies, which is like a, a cello technique method broken down into this series of, I think, a couple of dozen different technical pieces to practice different aspects of technique. And so he was both a composer and a bit of a kind of cello pedagogue. This younger Dupont was kind of, you might say, Beethoven's personal cellist. He was the cellist for whom Beethoven's early cello sonatas were written, the Opus Fives, a couple of my favourites. He was also known as Napoleon's cellist, and there's an album of Dupont cello music that bears the name, Napoleon's cellist. There's a story goes about Dupont meeting Napoleon in 1812. The emperor insisted on trying out Dupont's Stradivarius cello, exclaiming, how the heck do you hold this thing? And it, it is said that Napoleon made a small dent in the ribs of the cello, and that just, oh, that just makes me go, oh. <laughs> cringe at the idea of somebody handling a, a strand so roughly that they make a mark in the ribs anyway legend has it that this this, this cello still exists it's called the Duport Strad rumor has it that the, this mark of Napoleon's leg is still visible this cello was later owned by the legend of 20th century cello player Mrslav Rostropovich and it became the world's most expensive cello it was sold after Slava Rostropovich's death in 2008 for million. Wow. So this is the guy that we're talking about, this Dupont. 
Um, both Duport brothers were alive at the time of these novels. Both Duport brothers wrote cello sonatas, plenty of them. Just a few written by either Duport have a movement with the tempo marking Andante. So we're not sure exactly which one it could have been, but here's a nice little section of the sonata in G major by Jean-Louis Duport, which has a nice andante for a second movement. So that's a little bit of Duport. And that's what Stephen was enjoying, playing his way through as darkness fell. What else was going on, Mike, as darkness fell on the surprise? Well, first, I got to thank you for bringing this music to us and to me particularly here. I love having this in the background as Jack's gone to change. Stephen also wants to change and he's loading the revolving pistol that Duhamel gave him. So yeah. it's particularly as he's you know carefully loading this precise piece, I can hear this cello in the background here. And Stephen's thinking how he grieves Duhamel's death again. And that reminds him he still has the blue Peter in his pocket and and you know kind yeah. of panics a bit. So he hurries to- uninsured. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He hurries to Tom Pulling's cabin and asks Tom to please attach it to the packet of his letters that he had given him earlier. He says, if, God forbid, you have to deliver it. And then Stephen asks him to take care of what he calls this prodigious great jewel of a thing. And Tom says, you know, not to worry. He's going to put it in his fob and that Stephen will be back to collect it in the morning. And now Pulling's wishes he was going with Stephen. So, uh, you know, another band of brothers moment here, you know, the same way Babington with Jack, Pullings with Stephen here. Love that. So now Stephen runs again back to his cabin to change. He's gotten a little hint from Tom about what would be appropriate to wear. And he wrestles with whether these circumstances will allow him to take a dose of laudanum. You know, he's got this rule that, you know, I don't take that until the middle of the night when I really can't sleep. But he's saying that this dose is not really a soporific, not something to help him sleep, but as O'Brien writes, a means of doing away with illogical, purely instinctive uneasiness, and thus of enabling his mind to deal more freely with any contingencies that might arise in the new situation. Boy, you know, spoken just like an addict here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and even more so, he says, you know, he knows that if he had any coca leaves handy, he, you know, he'd be chewing on them right now. And, and that they would stimulate him, whereas, and again, O'Brien writes, the tincture had a tendency, this coming from Stephen's mind, a very slight tendency to induce a more contemplative frame of mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, contemplative. Yeah, I guess that's one way of putting it. You know, but 
Stephen thinks to himself, you know, the tincture has always answered in emergencies and its virtues far outweigh its slight disadvantages. And, and in any event, the external stimulation that this kind of encounter must necessarily produce would more than counteract any very trifling degrees of narcosis. So uh, it's, uh, you know, Stephen's brain's going back and forth and back and forth, pros and cons, and then he makes his decisions. He says the Diane's destination made it certain that she would have an important agent aboard. It was of the first consequence that he should be taken and to admit to omit any step that might increase the chances of doing so would be wrong indeed. Nothing was weaker than supposing a necessary contradiction between duty and inclination. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. He finished his glass of laudanum with pleasure, though without the fullest satisfaction, and sat down to the exact methodical loading of his revolving pistol. So suffice it to say that we don't want to have Stephen leading the just say no programs in the school system. Oh, and, gosh. you know, and there's nothing like a stiff dose of opium before you're loading up your weapons. But luckily, thanks to Bidding, these are no longer such stiff doses. Oh, boy. I mean, on the one hand, I think in the previous paragraph, we were feeling good about the fact that Stephen's going into combat with his weapon sharpened and in good practice. Now we're learning that he's carrying pistols into combat lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, I don't think we're meant to take it seriously that he really, really thinks there's a payoff here. This is all his real lack of self-awareness. And we get a little reminder as well, without the fullest satisfaction. That's a reminder that the laudanum is watered way down. And that in itself is a problem because Padine is dosing himself. Right, right. Oh. Although it might work to Stephen's advantage tonight. Maybe he will yeah. be a little bit sharper by virtue of the brandy versus the opium. Oh, even so. Even so, my gosh. Right. Anyhow, this darkness has fallen completely. It is an uncommonly dark night. And even though the shoreline is a way off, everyone except for Killick is speaking in these hushed voices. And to his credit, Killick is fussing about important stuff. He's getting Jack's meal prepared in time. He knows that Jack won't come down to eat until the last minute once they've picked up the other boats. And we get to half an hour later, they pick up the squadron's boats and Babington calls across, God bless you, sir. And Jack gets together with the commanders of each of these boats from the squadron's ships and goes over his orders. He makes sure also, like a good commander, that everyone gets a good supper in such business, he says, a full belly is half the battle. And thankfully, he takes his own advice as Killick comes up and brings Jack down to the cabin to eat. And eating with him, Stephen wonders whether actors waiting for a curtain to go up have this same distorted sense of time, time passing now very, very slowly. He thinks to himself, a present that advances, to be sure, but only like the shadow on a dial, imperceptibly... And even then it may go back. And Jack says that on stage, feasts are made of cardboard and that they have no taste. Therefore, unlike this famous Strasbourg pie that they're having now, he offers Stephen a piece of this clearly not cardboard Strasbourg pie. And Stephen, who normally has no appetite, eats a piece and asks for another, saying that it's uncommonly good. And Mike, with th this pie is, is pretty rich going. The Lobscouse and Spotted Dog book on page 23 says that it's made of foie gras, bacon, egg, and puff pastry. The authors of the book said it was the most rich thing they'd ever eaten. And they follow it up with toasted cheese, 
and a bottle of Hermitage. And by the way, Mike, never mind not sleeping. After foie gras, egg, cheese, and pastry, these guys aren't going to use their head for at least a week. <laughs> and it, anyhow, the text says they were both very fond of wine and they knew this might be the last bottle they would drink. If that should prove the case, then at least it would be a noble close, for it was a fine, great, generous wine in the prime of life, one that could stand being tossed about at sea. They drank it slowly, not saying very much, but sitting there in a companionable silence in the candlelit, while the ship steadily moved ashore. I can't decide whether O'Brien was talking about the wine or about the two of them or both here. Yeah. I love this. You know, prime of life, yeah. knocked about on sea. I love this. Yeah. The wine is a metaphor for the people. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. This is fabulous. Well, yeah, we remember Cape Bowhead where, where Jack was originally going to stand off and catch the Diane coming out. It's about three miles away now. And this lighthouse beam up above is flashing on them every two minutes. The tide is on the make. Jack has the anchor lowered to the hawse hole so that when they get in, they can quietly you know, slip it into the water here. Uh, Jack goes down over the stern ladder. You know, He's talked to the boat's captains. Now he walks along all of the boats, greets all of the crews, makes sure you know he's feeling around to make sure the oars are all muffled reminds them not to talk and and he's you know he's greeting them all he's yeah. you know he's being the commander i love this that is his moment yeah yeah this is this is phenomenal here he said you know be sure to put on your armbands and to stretch out like heroes when he hails but not before not before uh he comes back on board and he's directing the surprises helmsman O'Brien writes, he reduced her spread of canvas so that she ghosted in on the tide of flood with no more than four topmast and main staysails. The gentle wind abaffed her starboard beam. In dead silence, they passed under the tall lighthouse cliff, so close in shore that they were on the very edge of the breakers, so close that the men held their breath. And even when they were past the bulge of the headland, they heard the steady beat of the surf within pistol shot to Lawbird. Now they were under the shadow of the cliff and even the dispersed light of the beam did not reach them, but it did light the hill, the vital shielding hill, this side of the fort. So they are, they're coming in, they're in the dark, they're silence. This is, this is looking good. I think it is as well. And I like that we get the signal that close action is coming because we get up close and personal like we always do with the characters. Right. The anchor is dropped, Surprises exactly where Jack wants her, the broadside's bearing on the isthmus. He's launched all of Surprise's boats. He tells Bondon to stay close to Stephen and goes down to get Stephen. Stephen stands up from the chess game that he's been engaging with Martin. Martin fastens Stephen's sword belt behind him with an expression of very great concern upon his face. They go down to Jack's cutter, that's leading this line of boats, Pullings and Martin wish them God speed, and off they go. They're overcoming the tide, they're overcoming the swell and the breeze, they're rowing really, really strongly, everybody's silent. Jack looks back, it's significant here that we're in Jack's point of view as this is all unfolding. He can't see the squadron, that's a good thing, they're out of sight now of the squadron, they turn east and now the tide is with them. Jack changes over rowers, 20 minutes they can see the northern side of the port and the well at bottom of the bay. A boat goes past them. And now is the moment for this challenge and response. And 
I'm not going to read out the French, but I'll read out my best effort at a translation of this little French back and forth. Not between Chevènement and Duchamp and the French guards, but between Stephen and this French boatman. Perhaps it was only a fishing boat going out for the night, they think. Jack opens his dark lantern. The boat ahoy, said in French. Stephen replied, ahoy. And now he's got Jack's hand on his shoulder as they go through this little exchange. Stephen asks, the Diane, where is she right now? Ah, still on the dock, for God's sake. Is that William? No, it's Stephen. Ah, okay, I'm off. What have you got there? Galley slaves, says Stephen. Ah, poor buggers. Okay, catch you later, huh? Later, says Stephen. Kiss my ass. Uh, You may disagree with my French translation, but more or less what they said. And Mike, this is another little rhyme. This rhymes with the encounter between Jack in a small boat and a small boat fisherman in the fog-bound Boston Harbour as they were escaping back in the fortune of war. But here we go, getting closer and closer now. Yeah, they they pull ahead. You know, there's clearly a party in progress up on the rampart, and and the tide ebb is just beginning. Uh, they have, you know, they they've met this fishing boat, but there's no official challenge for any of the boats. So Jack thinks, you know, they're all through into the port, perhaps into the trap. Jack, you know, stands and he sees just as they expected a brig, some other craft, the Diane, the two merchantmen, and coming in even closer. He sees that in front of the Diane are two gunboats moored abreast. Now, Jack has Bondin set up the blue rocket, and within a second of this rocket's burst, the whole southern sky flashed as Surprise's broadside answered. So the boats race ahead. The launch bumps into the Diane along her main chains, and a boarding party swarms up and overcomes the small harbor watch that she had on board. You know, parties from the head and stern sweep everyone down into the hatchways. Stephen heads for where he would be in his cabin, and he finds a middle-aged man looking up angrily from his writing table. Stephen covers him with a pistol as Bonded pins him, gets him tied and silenced and put into a boat. So here's that agent that Stephen wanted to be sure to take. Padine and Johnson cut the cables as the men loose the sails. You know, the other boats sweep the lower deck and they drive the watch and their women into the hold and clamp the hatches. So it was party night on board, just as Jack thought. The surprise keeps up her incessant firing. The church bells are starting to ring drums and trumpets sound on land and they see a line of torches heading for the isthmus so jack's plan is working and jack sends mr bulkley and the master gunner to take the cutters and to tow diane's head clear the zeal and a gust of wind run diane's stem tight in between the two gunboats Jack asks West to take a party and carry the gunboats out into the stream. The gunboats, however, turn out to be moored with a chain fore and aft. So Jack asks Davidge to take the boats' crews and to shift the two merchantmen behind Diane. It's great, isn't it? I love how it was all going fine. It was all going fine. Stevens found the agent, the cutting out, the crew, all fine. But we get a little peripety of our own here, this reverse where... The stem of the boat, the bow of the boat, is now stuck between these two gunboats. And now they have to scramble for their lives because the regular ashore crew of the Diane are now on their way. As the merchantmen move out into the stream, these Dianes 
come down the street, the officers on horseback, followed by the Liberty men, followed by soldiers. Jack calls for Davidge and West to heave the stern clear while they're still working on the front. The officer, meanwhile, in the front of the Diane's crew, jumps his horse onto the deck. The horse falls. Jack throws the man into the sea. And more and more of these Dianes, led by the mounted officers, are coming aboard. And Mike, the tide is turning against the surprises here. Five more horses jump across. There are men swarming across the brows onto the ship. They try to take power from the sails and a fight breaks out on the quarter deck. The Diane's captain, still still on his horse, rides between two fallen horses. Stephen, thankfully, still in command of his senses, shoots the guy in the soldier, passes his sword through him. Jack, meanwhile, is pinned to the capstan by the crowd. Surprises come up from below and from the boats, roaring Merry Christmas and set about the Frenchmen with cutlasses and boarding axes. But there are still people coming over from the quay. The surprises are outnumbered for a moment. Jack fights his way to the front. There are swords clashing. There's a mad horse running between them. A Frenchman's sabre catches Jack above his knee. Others are rushing in knocking a man down and one man's point sword point plows up jack's forearm jack catches him left-handed smacks him with his sword pommel throws him back into the crowd knocking three men down jack turns and feels a blow from behind and thinks to himself huh horse davidge and west meanwhile have got the frigates stern swung away and she manages to leave the key the brows drop away the dianes jump off there are some that are still aboard they surrender and it looks like we're on our way here. They're still taking pistol and musket fire from the quay as Killick and Place help Jack to fire a carronade that scatters the men and they fire at the mooring bollard. Ha. Huh. So at long last, we think we're free, just though as the battery at the bottom of the harbour fires, they're trying to miss their own ships but they hit the post office and parts of the quay. Jack sends Mr. Bentley and a crew to take those gunboats, which are now free as prizes, and they swing out unencumbered into the stream. As they move their five prizes away from the quay, Jack finally needs the numbers that he has in reserve, so he calls in the Tartaruses, the dolphins, the camels, and the vultures to help tow these prizes clear of the port. There's brisk musket fire. It's stopped by a broadside from the Diane, and now, it says... They were out in the open sea, heaving on the familiar swell with the impassive beam of the lighthouse sweeping the air overhead. The surprise and the ships of the squadron standing in, not a mile away, top lanterns all ablaze. It's fascinating. Here's, you know, another tiny little rhythm. You know, five prizes last time, a few chapters ago, five prizes again. But boy, these are sweet prizes. What a chapter. And, And kind of, I'm trying to think back in... For O'Brien, you know, we don't see action all that often, and, and we always marvel about how it's so, the books are so great without action. But boy, this has been kind of action-packed, action-packed. We've had this action and also the earlier action against the Spartan, and prior to that, we haven't had very much first-person action. It's been It's been a long time coming. We're still not sure, though, how Jack is going to fare. He took this blow from behind. He's had some sword and and, and boarding axe wounds. We're not sure whether the book is now over. Like, was this action the culmination, or is there more still yet to come? What about Stephen? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we just were reminded about the Blue Peter. There was supposed to be an upcoming trip to Sweden, 
like to know what happens there. Ledward and Ray still hanging around somewhere in Europe. You know, I would hate for them to pop up in the midst of all this glory. And what of the South American mission? You know, now we've got some more intelligence. Hopefully we're, we're headed out for that. Yeah. So, and hopefully we're headed towards reinstatement for Jack Aubrey as well. But who knows how soon that's going to happen. I know that's right. You know, you know, even with Blaine's best estimate, we're probably still a year away. But at least the the clocks, you know, ticking, and the you know, hopefully the thing is in motion here. I don't know about you, Ian. What do you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? With all my heart. So he was relying on his dead reckoning, which needed to be perfect for this nice meeting. For this nice? <laughs> I'll take right there if we want. There you go. Thanks, Sam. We'll, we'll print that one. <laughs>